Welcome to the Lion's Den. On today's episode, co-host Nathan and I are very excited to be joined by cricketer Michael Atherton. An alumnus of Downing College where he read history, Michael earned his blue from Cambridge University Cricket Club and went on to captain the England Test side from 1993 to 1998. He has scored a total of 7,728 test runs in his career over the course of 115 matches and has since been reporting for Sky Sports and is currently the Chief Cricket Correspondent for The Times. So first of all, let's kind of get stuck into talking about um, that amazing performance we've just seen from England last week in the Sri Lanka test. Now, as opposed to the South Africa series before Christmas, um, where you went out there, this time you were watching from a studio bubble here in England on a monitor. Um, what was that like for you as a reporter and did it create a sort of different atmosphere within the live broadcasting setting? Well, it's the first time we've done it or the first time I've done it uh, off tube at home. Normally we'd go out to the country where England are playing um, and we'd either do our own broadcast from there or we'd be put on to what's called the world feed production um, which would then you know come back into the uh, into the television and, and homes in England um, this time because of all kinds of reasons COVID you know difficulty of getting visas um, all those kind of things we had to do it from home and it went amazingly well actually I think all of us were a bit worried at first because a we hadn't done it before b uh, the technology technological requirements were quite challenging so there were three or four of us in the studios at Sky in West London we had David Lloyd who was up in Manchester he couldn't come to Sky because he's he's kind of you know beyond 70 and therefore vulnerable and, and not wanting to travel until he's got his vaccine and then we had a couple of cricketers come commentators in Colombo as well uh, Mahela Jayawardner and Kumar Sangakkara former Sri Lankan players so we had these people dotted all over the place um, but it worked well. I mean, we took the, 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 the feed from the ground. There's a, there was a world feed production going all over the place. And we took those pictures and then just put our own commentary on it. And I mean, you miss certain things, you know, like being close to things and, and knowing about the conditions and the pitch and how the players are and all the little things that you pick up on a daily basis by speaking to players when you're on the ground. But other than that, the actual commentary and production, you know, went remarkably smoothly. I mean, it's not for me to say how good or otherwise the coverage was because that's, you know, viewers will have their, their own opinions. But in terms of a seamless production, it was pretty good. There weren't many, I mean, we didn't lose the pictures at any stage. Um, there were one or two instances where uh, we were talking over each other a little bit because of the delay, for example, for David Lloyd in Manchester, but that they were few and far between on the first day. And after that, we got the hang of it. So the way we did it was bizarrely, we had, if I was com commentating with David Lloyd, who was in Manchester, I would have him on FaceTime. Uh, so each of us could see each other because it's quite important to know when you're talking. Um, and then both of us would have a monitor with the, the pictures coming in from the ground in goal. So, I mean, it was amazing how well it went, really. No, I mean, FaceTiming 
well, what's that like? Just FaceTiming, FaceTiming, you know, calling well, up the key, and the key saying... is being able to see your co-commentator because obviously if you can't see him, you don't know. Normally he's right next to you when you're commentating and it's very easy to know who's talking. But if the guy is a couple of hundred miles away and you can't see him, the worst thing is to be talking over each other all the time. So you had to have a a way of actually just seeing your co-commentator and we, we recognised that FaceTime was about the only way to do it or as good a, a way to do it and in the end it worked worked perfectly. Yeah it, it, I mean it seemed to work very smoothly was it obviously there was contrasting with South Africa before Christmas where you kind of were out there reporting in a bubble and then the cancellation so you had to return home what was that experience like was it it was probably more stressful to work in, wasn't um, it? Well, we weren't in the players' bubble in South Africa. I mean, in the summer, when we did all the test matches from Manchester and Southampton, we were in the bubble with the players. We were staying on site, on the hotel. We couldn't go out. Um, you know, all the restrictions that uh, were on the players were on us. You were tested every day. And, you know, it's quite a strict... Um, quite a strict biosecure bubble that we were involved in for the whole summer. In South Africa, the players were in their bubble, which was a, they were in a hotel called a vineyard in, in Cape Town, and they would travel from that hotel to the ground and then they couldn't go anywhere else, whereas we were just in a normal hotel down on the waterfront and could go out uh, for dinner. But obviously, there was, you know, you're strict, trying to be strict on social distancing and all the usual um limitations that are now uh, in place um and then when we did go into the ground which is called newlands in cape town you know we were we we were not in any way shape or form in contact with the players if we interviewed them we had to do it from beyond the boundary edge and at, and at a you know and at a reasonable distance so I'm afraid in 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 this situation it, you know there are limitations all the time and there are only i think half a dozen written journalists in South Africa. There were no written journalists at all in Sri Lanka. There'll be no written journalists in England, uh, in India for the forthcoming series. So it's problematic, but everybody's just trying to do the best they can in, in, the, in the circumstances, that, as is everybody else in, in every walk of life. So obviously in terms of the cricket itself, Mike, out in Gaul, um, obviously the headlines, many of them were centred around Joe Roos, his performance, um, you know, he was... A, you know, somewhat of a farcical run out at the end of play away from back-to-back -back double centuries. Um, so his importance to the team, which wasn't questioned at all before this, has only been heightened, um, was obviously the performances of the likes of Sibley and Butler in the, in the, second, in the second test of the chase might have eased some of these concerns. But leading up to that, um, do you think the concerns around the England top order, particularly heading into India, uh, have been are, are somewhat justified or for example does the presence of Rory Burns coming back into the squad help things how do you see the England top order minus Joe Root going into the India series it's a good question I mean I'm not quite sure what the batting order is going to be as you say Burns is coming back Bairstow is going away um, depends a little bit where they want to bat Ben Stokes if he bats five uh, probably Dan Lawrence misses out. I mean, basically, you've got players like Butler, Root and Stokes who are very experienced now in, in subcontinental style Asian conditions. And then you've got 
some younger players, less experienced players like Sibley and Crawley, who are just finding their feet, really. You know, those guys have not played very much in the subcontinent, and that probably showed in Sri Lanka. Um, Sibley kind of made some adjustments and came to terms with it in that final innings of the second test. Crawley didn't. Uh, but it's all these things are a learning curve and a, and a development in a, in a player's career. Um, I mean, you know, India's going to be a much tougher challenge than Sri Lanka, clearly. They've got a better team, better all-round team, great players in all departments um, and are very hard to beat at home. Um, so it's going to be a much tougher challenge for all kinds of reasons. Um, I don't know how concerned I am, really. I mean, there's, you know, England have got some top-class players, but they've also got some players finding their way. Um, and those players will, you know, find it find it a tough old challenge in India. You mentioned there Johnny Bairstow being sent home um, and the decision to send both him and Mark Wood home after the Sri Lanka series, alongside the announcement that I think it's only the first test that Joss Butler will be playing um, in India. That's caused quite a lot of discussion, um, particularly with, you know, Bairstow doing reasonably well in goal. And obviously Butler was, was very helpful in steering the chase home there in the second test as well. Um, there's been quite a lot of, talk about whether that's the right thing to do whether obviously this is a very hectic year in the test schedule for England and you know rest and rotation has been something that lots of people have spoken about the way I look at it is this is quite a smart preemptive decision and um, taking into account the fact that playing professional cricket in a bubble is incredibly mentally draining I mean we heard a lot about how strict the bubble was in Sri Lanka and even though the players are in the same testing bubble they're not eating together and things like that and how you know emotionally draining that must be at times so to me, this seems like quite a smart decision to t look to take some of your players who, you know, Bearstone would play all three formats. They're going to be playing a lot of cricket this year. This seems like quite a smart, you know, anticipat anticipatory move, getting out ahead of potential problems um, before they come into, into, into being later on in the season. Yeah, there's, there's no way they can play everything. I mean, if you look at the schedule ahead, it's 17 test matches, numerous white ball games, a World T20 in India... Um, and then, as you say, because of the COVID restrictions, you know, lengthy periods in a biosecure bubble, which is, you know, not close to anything like normality. So there's no question that the players have to rest. I suppose the question is what you prioritise and when you give them the rest period. So, you know, people might find it a puzzle, for example, that Joss Butler will miss the last three tests in India, but then may play a whole IPL. So that's... That's the question, really, when you rest your players and, and what your priorities are. I mean, I don't, I don't um, envy the selectors. Their choices, it's tricky, and that's why they're trying to get a bigger pool of players. And in the end, judgment will come at the end of the year. You know, after, after all the cricket is done, how have England coped and managed uh, with the schedule and how successful have they been? I mean, I agree with the rest. I'm not entirely sure uh, that the timing of the rest is, is the right thing um you know I, I think in this year you could argue it's exceptional circumstances and you could have asked maybe maybe one or two of the multi-format players that you mentioned to rest elsewhere um but judgment will come at the end um you know if england have a very successful tour of india win the world t20 and the ashes nobody's going to be complaining of course yeah that's all about the results at the end of the day um Obviously, sticking to the to the COVID topic, obviously Moeen Ali was someone who who missed out in Sri Lanka, having having tested positive on upon arrival. Um, 
is he somebody you envision as coming back into the side for the for the India series, especially with this policy of rest and rotation? Or do you think the final day performance of Bess and Leach means that right now they're they're undroppable? It's a good question. Um, uh, Mo and Ali's going to be uh, he's fine for selection now. He's gone through you know his COVID. Um, situation and they said that he wasn't going to be available for the second test because he got to get himself back up to speed um, which he has done and Silverwood said the other day you know he's right there available for selection it's a, it's a tricky call because I, I mean he, he's a better off spinner than Don Bess I think and he's got I don't know 160 70 test wickets or something he's about fourth on England's wicket taking list for spinners so at his best you You'd say he's a more formidable cricketer than Don Bess, who's just young and learning his trade. But you have to you have to evaluate the players on where they are and where they were. You know, <laughs> I mean, if you're just going to go on players' record, you can make the argument to bring back any number of uh, older players or more experienced players. So the question is really, where is Moin Ali now? Not where was he three or four years ago? And he's not played Test cricket for a while. Um, you know, he, he kind of uh, stepped away from Test cricket for a bit, um, so that's the question really. Uh, comparing Moen Ali now and Don Bess rather than Moen Ali of, th of three or four years ago, and I, that's a hard one to answer. I probably say England might bring him back. I don't know. It's it's difficult one to to be sure about. Don Bess did pretty well. I mean, he didn't. You know, he got gifted a five for in that first Test match, um, and he was fairly honest about that. He didn't bowl anywhere near his best yet picked up five cheap wickets and and had a successful tour in terms of of taking wickets he scored some useful runs as well in that second test match so he's a he's a young player who's got a bit of character and he's learning his trade um but india again as i said before it's going to be a very different challenge yeah and the key word there i guess is different um because obviously playing india in india as we all know is vastly different from the home series that will be coming up during the summer um, where, you know, England will obviously fancy themselves a lot more. And then even that is going to be vastly different from the challenge next winter um, of the Ashes. And with all of these, you know, multifaceted um, series coming in and very, very different styles and different conditions, I guess, what, what would you say, and we touched on this earlier, what would you say constitutes a successful year for this England side based on where we think they are? Because, you know, they get praised for playing on a rank turner and winning two and ill in goal, but then there's the, well, we still have to go to India. Then let's say they lose to India in India, but beat India at home. I suppose that's still going to be qualified as a success. Or at the end of the day, it's an Ashes year. All that matters and to be all and end all is, is getting a result down under next winter. Well, I think you can be pretty certain England to be competitive at home. They always have been in, in recent years. They, you know, the fairly unique conditions of a Duke's ball and uh, juicy home conditions. England were bound to be competitive at home. The, the question, the three big series in terms of having England come on as a side are the Ashes away, India away in Test matches, and then the World T20, which England have got a really successful white ball side, but winning. Um, an ICC event in India, again, is probably about as tough a challenge as it comes. So if you are prioritising, you've got those three, Ashes, India away, and ICC World T20. So England's year will be judged on how they go in those three uh, series, I, I, I should think. Uh, obviously, India have five test matches in England as well. Um, 
but England will be, you know, strong, stronger favourites in that series than they would be away from home. So I think those are the three series that people will concentrate on and, and see um, how England go. I mean, as you say, very different challenges, India away, you know, lots of spin. We imagine lots of spin anyway in Chennai and Ahmedabad. And then Australia, where it's tough to win on flat, flatter pitches with Kookaburra balls and you need a bit of pace and all kinds of things. So those, those are tough challenges away from home. So um, Nathan and I, were, we were talking the other day and obviously we're a bit biased because we're massive cricket fans, but we feel like there's been over the past year and lockdown in particular, a bit of a, a, bit of a resurgence in interest in text cric test cricket in the public. Um, whether that's just because, you know, people pop it on in the background whilst they're at home working. But it was particularly evident in the Australia-India series, and that received a huge amount of kind of media attention and public kind of coverage, despite England not being involved. Um, do you think it's a genuine real love for the format of Test cricket that's kind of brought it back to a wider audience? I, th I think there's been a captive audience in lockdown. I mean, just knowing what our viewing figures are like, they've been... Uh, on the rise since the, since the start of lockdown, COVID last summer, viewing figures were very strong. They were very strong for Sri Lanka. Um, so I, I think there's a kind of captive audience there and test cricket being a long game and, you know, lots of people are at home and, and not much else to do. It, it's almost been perfect for that. I also think test cricket over the last four or five years has produced some memorable, memorable games. Generally, the dull draw has gone out of the game. Pitches uh, tend to be a bit more bowler-friendly, which is good results. Um, very few draws in test cricket. So I think the standard and the variety of cricket that we've seen has been strong. And you put that together with a captive audience um, and, you know, the, the viewing figures are, are pretty good. Um, but they're, they're pretty good for all kinds of cricket at the moment. IPL viewing figures were strong, you know, the World Cup a couple of years ago. So, um, yeah, I don't know whether it's just test cricket, but I do think that the, the style and, and variety of test cricket in the last four or five years has led to some pretty pretty strong figures, which is good. I mean, I like test cricket, so I'd like to see it, you know, thrive and, and survive. Do you think it's more probably that, as you were saying, so the variation and the just continuity of great cricket and great entertainment to watch more so than the test championship for example test championship i think is in the background i'm not so sure how many people are really grabbed by it it's quite complex to understand um whether that will change in time and, and you know when the Test Championship final, if it takes place next summer, whether that really grabs attention, I don't know. But I suspect that's secondary to, to the interest. And the interest really has been because the standard of cricket has been good. It's been interesting to watch. I mean, there are one or two problems. You've got a bit of a two-speed world in Test cricket at the moment. You've got the teams that can afford to play it, like India, Australia, England, and they play a lot of it. And then Sri Lanka, that we've just seen, are one of those teams that can't really afford to play it, don't play that much of it. And their standards look to be dropping. Um, so the key for the test game is how many countries will continue to be viable and competitive at that kind of level. And at the moment, you know, you've probably got five 
pretty good sides and then there's a bit of a gap between between the rest so it's important to keep um, the number of teams that are competitive high. And you were saying um, just earlier that obviously potentially it could be quite a big year for England with you know T20 and the Ashes coming up and how how do you think as a side that has a lot of um, you know a lot of contrast and a lot of dynamism how do you think that will that will work in kind of the coming months and how do you think they'll fare well i think england uh, the, what the pandemic has done is given a bit of an advantage to countries like england that have quite a lot of money and quite a lot of uh, players to choose from so you've got three formats of the game um if you've got only a small squad, it puts a lot of pressure on that squad in, in the biosecure bubbles that we talked about. Whereas England, they're developing a much stronger squad or bigger, larger pool of players. They've got the money to keep flying players back and forth out of India, as they will do over the next uh, month or so. So the pandemic has actually given an advantage to the well-resourced team. So although it's a very tough year of cricket ahead with lots of different tournaments and, and lots of cricket to play, England's resources probably mean they're one of the better placed teams to cope, I would have thought. Yes, and you were saying about obviously, you know, Wood and, um, you know, Butler then being flown home. I think particularly over the past 18 months, whether rightly or wrongly, and there was talk about, you know, Root as a captain and whether he was performing, which is really nice to see him getting those runs in Sri Lanka. But obviously, he's a player that's not getting a rest and he's kind of batting on scoring all these runs and doing, you know, you yourself will know that even at the best of times, being the England Test captain is a fairly exhausting job, both physically and mentally. Um, do you think it's probably um, Root seeing the closing years of his captaincy era or he'll come out stronger yeah. and keep going? Well, it depends how it goes. I mean, if you're playing 17 tests in the year and it doesn't go well, you could see how, you know, that would be a, a difficult situation at the end of the year. I mean, the last time England played as many tests as this was 2016 and that finished Alistair Cook off. He was at the end of his captaincy, done four years or so. And then, you know, England lost badly in India and, and that, that finished him off. But if you're winning and you're riding the crest of a wave, as Root is right now, getting runs, winning games, you tend to feel invigorated with all that. He'll, he'll get some rest in the white ball cricket. I mean, I can't imagine he's going to play the whole India tour. They're going to give him a break in the white ball uh, section of that. Certainly T20 at the moment seems to be the area where they give Root a bit of a rest and that so that puts a question mark as to whether he'll get in the side for the world t20 in india so those are the areas that he's getting a rest right now but you know like everybody else he'll need a rest he can't do it all so i guess just to the, the kind of last area we wanted to cover mike was um to bring things back to the to the cambridge angle um i'm so correct me i'm gonna throw a few numbers and figures at you so correct me if any of these are wrong um, but from what I could see, so you were 87 to 89. Um, you captained for two years, your, your latter two years. Um, you played in two three-day varsity matches at Lords, um, two, And then I think the one in between was abandoned, according to the scorecards I looked at. And your third one, you, got, you scored 56 in the, in the first innings. Um, you know, looking back, what, of your time playing cricket in Cambridge, um, what, what are your overriding memories of, of those three years on the pitch? 
well, we had a lot of fun. Uh, it was a great time to be playing there. I mean, you know, unlike now, there was a full first-class fixture list. I can't remember how many games we'd have played, but we probably would have played eight or nine first-class fixtures before the varsity match. I mean, I can, looking back, I can't believe how we played as much cricket and got a degree. It's bizarre, really. Um, and we weren't a very good side. We had one or two players there who went on to play county cricket. So I was there. There's a lad called Steve James, who's Glamorgan, Johnny Atkinson, who played at Somerset, a lad called Rob Turner, who's a Somerset player. One or two who played minor counties cricket. Um, but, you know, we were, by county standards, a pretty ropey side. Um, but we had a lot of fun, enjoyed it, made some good mates. Um, you know, thoroughly enjoyable experience. Um, it's very different now, first class uh, status has gone uh, you know you play very few uh, full strength county sides if any so it, it's very different I was grateful for the opportunity um, back then yeah long time ago now Mike yeah I wanted to actually ask you about the the first class aspect of it um, and your thoughts because you wrote you wrote last year after the four-day varsity game between um, between Cambridge and Oxford in Fenners, um, that that was supposed to be the last one. Um, and I think it was supposed to be the last one. And I, I remember your article very well because you met, you wrote about the the, ball, the the spinner who bowled the last ball of first-class cricket at Fenners, and that was Tom Balderson, and um, I know him well. Um, but then they managed to get one, one post-lockdown game in um, this year. So the four-day game this year was also... Uh, so they managed to actually get one more first-class game in there. But it looks like, you know, that will be the last game with that status. Um in Fenners, I guess the discussion comes back to the issue of tradition versus standard, um, doesn't it? Because you know you made your your test debut in in the summer of 1989 after your last varsity match. Obviously, that doesn't happen anymore. You don't get players playing for Oxford or Cambridge and then going immediately into onto test cricket, if at all. I think Zafar Ansari was the last one, um, and there was a big a bit of a gap between his test career and his studies. So. I guess, I guess the question is, it doesn't make, it probably does make sense from a standard point of view, but how do you, how do you try and... It, it was hard to justify first-class status even when I was there, if I'm honest. I mean, if you're just looking at pure standards, you couldn't argue that, you know, the standard that we played to was, was first-class cricket and many of the performances against us warped, you know, the averages at the end of the year um, so, so all that was hard to justify. I mean, I, I would still, the issue for me is not necessarily first class status, which seems to me a relatively unimportant thing. It's whether you can find a way of still encouraging cricketers who have the ability, if they want to, to go to university, because it would seem to me to be a shame if a young promising cricketer feels as though his only route into the first class game is to leave school and go straight to a county for all kinds of reasons that you know a first class cricket career is quite short um, players often face challenges at the end of that career and if you've got a degree to back it up that's probably a good thing rather than a bad thing there are fewer players now I think partly because of the um, the money on offer in the professional game 
just because they feel that you know university is a bit of a of a waste of time in terms of their cricketing careers that you'd find many fewer cricketers go to university but I still think that's a bit of a shame and I'd like to find a way of still encouraging a, a promising young cricketer to go to university if he so wished um because also people develop at different paces you can have somebody who develops quite late at 23 24 but if you know, if he feels his time has gone, then then that's tricky. So I don't know. I mean, it's hard to justify the first class status, but I still feel there should be an avenue into the first class game for people who've been to university. And that's hard to see. If, if, if you can't play any decent cricket at university, it's hard to see how that avenue will exist. Obviously, that must be something you feel quite strongly about in terms of the decision to want to go to university. Um, I, I read somewhere that you had the opportunity to go straight into the Lancashire setup coming out of school, but you decided to take your offer for Cambridge. Was Is that correct or is that a slight? Yeah, I mean, well, I signed, I signed a, a, a summer contract with Lancashire when I left school to go. So it was my choice to go to university. I mean, I could have signed a full-time contract had I wished. In the end, it was part of a, partly a cricket decision in any case because I probably wouldn't have got straight into the Lancashire team and it was to my advantage to go and play some first-class cricket at Fenners, do quite well, and then, you know, it eased my path into the Lancashire team in a way. Um, but also it was different back then. You know, you're talking 30 years ago, there weren't the rewards in the game that there are now, so more players would go to university then. And universities, you know, we were playing for first, we had a full first-class fixture list. It's different now whether I'd make the same choice again now I don't know that's that's hard to say um but I, I just you know repeat what I said to you before I, I think it's good to have a route into the first class game from university still for those who want to go that way um you know because some people just don't know what they want to do at 18 you don't know whether you want to commit to a full-time cricket career and sometimes balancing the two is, is can be a good thing for two or three years until you've made your mind up and worked out how quickly or otherwise you're going to progress. So it'd be nice to still have that avenue for players who do want to go to university. Thank you so much. That's a really, I feel like that's a really nice note to end on. Um, it's been really great chatting to you. Um, and thank you so much for joining us. That's all right. Good luck with everything. Nice to see you both. for listening to the lion's den make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to follow the bluebird on facebook twitter and instagram to keep up to date with the world of cambridge sport in the air into the gap that's four well played He's been waiting very patiently for this opportunity. So Mike Atherton has made 100 at the Sydney Cricket Ground, his third 100 in Test Cricket. He's first against Australia, and that's his 17th first-class 100.